Welcome to Connect Church. We're a new church in the East Windsor Heightstown area, and we're a church that is looking to connect to Jesus and community. We're so glad you've joined us. Hello, everyone. My name is Dave, and it's great to be able to share the message uh, with you today. Have you ever had a moment where you really wanted to get something right? You know, we live in a world where we have uh, YouTube at our fingertips, and so we could find a video on how to do just about anything. Uh, I use this a lot for uh, my home uh, projects. I just want to get them right. And so I watch a YouTube video, or I'll Google, read some things, go to Home Depot, buy a bunch of stuff, and then I quickly realize I have the knowledge on how to do it, but I'm really bad at the execution, and it doesn't work out the way uh, that, that I thought it would be. I want to get it right, but I, I can't get it right. And I see this in, in many aspects of life as well besides this. Um, one time, I got it in my head that I was going to make raviolis from scratch, and so I bought a bunch of supplies, watched some YouTube videos, learned on it, and found a willing test subject who happened to be uh, my wife who I was dating at the time. And let's just say it's a good idea she did not base the standing of our relationship off the taste of those raviolis. Now, not only were they bad the first time, she was brave enough to let me try a second time, which they were equally or just maybe even worse uh, at, at that point. But it's been a while, so maybe I'll bring it back and try, try to give it a shot uh, again. Maybe you see this in your life. Maybe it's college and a class that you're taking. Like, you know the information, but just to translate to that moment of the test or to the project, it's like you can't make that jump. Or, or at work, it's a project we're working through. Or even with friendships and relationships in our life, we kind of have the knowledge of how these things are supposed to work, but then the actual execution can sometimes uh, fall short. It's one thing to know the facts and the information about something, but it's a whole nother thing to be able to execute it. Over the last few weeks, we have slowly been walking through the gospel and what it means. We've been learning to trust the story that God created us good um, and created us to be with him. We saw that in Genesis 1 and 2. But yet we live in a world that's damaged by evil. We saw that in Genesis 3 and damaged by our sin. But yet, because God is good, He restores us. And we looked at, at how God has ultimately restored us through Jesus, but, but the rest of Scripture was pointing us to that restoration. And then last week, uh, Nadine shared with us about the challenge that we have now to bring this gospel to others and how that affects our life now. And so we have the facts of the gospel. We know what it looks like. Maybe we could even recite it. But the question I want to wrestle with today is, are we actually applying it each and every day? The gospel is not just something for us to know for an online church service or if someone were to ask us to recite it, but it's something that we need over and over. And so the question for us today is, are we gospel fluent people in everyday life? Let, let me give you an example. In high school, uh, I did very well in, uh, in Spanish uh, for the classes that I had there, uh, mainly because I'm pretty good at memorization. And so I can remember the vocab and I can get it down. Uh, so well, in fact, that I was actually inducted into the Spanish Iron Society. And this is the biggest scam of all time. Because if you've ever heard me try to speak in Spanish, you'll know that my pronunciation is hard. It's better enough in English. To do it in another language is even worse. Um, I can't get things right. Uh, I, yeah, I could get a word here and there in a conversation. I, my vocabulary will kick in. Uh, but overall, I, I can't do it. And so I'm, I'm Spanish fluent-ish, but I'm definitely not Spanish fluent. Uh, and in the same way, we can be gospel fluent-ish. We know the facts. We can hear a couple of the phrases, but lack the execution and the day-to-day -day aspect of that. And so how do we become these people? 
Let's explore 2 Timothy chapter 4, uh, which I think can help us on that. Just to give us some quick context, this is one of the Apostle Paul's final letters. Uh, most likely execution in Rome is awaiting him at this point. Timothy is like a son in the faith to him, and he's writing these instructions. Timothy is now leading the church in Ephesus, and he's kind of speaking to him as, Timothy, as you pastor this church, here's some things that you need to do. And so we pick it up in chapter 4. He says this in 2 Timothy 4.1. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing in his kingdom, I give you this charge. And so Paul basically says, hey, Timothy, listen up. And he's like, I charge you before Jesus. I charge you before eternity. Like, this is a big deal. Get, get your attention, Timothy. And so, so the same could be said for us as readers. Okay, what's Paul really getting at here? Here's what he says in the very next verse of verse 2. He says, preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. Now we hear that word preach, and, and, and I wonder what comes to mind for us. Maybe we think about what's happening right now, or a formalized church service, or a street preacher, someone that's a trained professional. I would venture to say that most of us do not view ourselves as, as preachers. Uh, we might think, you know, pastors, trained leaders, people that went to seminary, all those kinds of things. But that's not likely what the view was in the early church. A lot of times we'll use the terminology of the priesthood of all believers. We use this to describe the idea that God has called all of us to ministry, uh, each and every one, whether quote-unquote professional clergy or, or, or just lay people, we're all called to ministry. But maybe a subcategory to the priesthood of all believers could be the preachhood of all believers, that we are all called uh, to preach. It's not just for pastors and church leaders. In fact, if we look at how Jesus organizes disciples, we see this. In Matthew 10, we see that he sends out the disciples to preach. In Luke 10, which Nadine did such a great job uh, expounding on us today, Jesus sent uh, last week, excuse me, Jesus sent out 72 disciples to preach. So that was beyond just kind of, you know, the official 12, so to speak. In Luke's account of the Great Commission in Luke 24, he indicates that his disciples will go forth and preach the gospel. In Acts chapter 8, we're told that the gospel spread because the believers that were being persecuted, this was beyond just the 12, you know, disciples, they were preaching the gospel. What's the point? All disciples are called to preach. Now, don't equate that necessarily with being on stage with a microphone. It could be that, uh, but that's a very limited context of it. In fact, the Greek word of 2 Timothy here behind preach really means to proclaim. You and I are called to proclaim Jesus. And so Paul says to him, preach. Preach the word. This is where we get to the difference between being gospel fluent and gospel fluent-ish. Are we just saying random thoughts that are connected in scripture and sound good? Or are we actually preaching the word? Well, what is the word? The word that Paul uses here for word in 2 Timothy 2 is the Greek word logos. It's the same Greek word that's used in John chapter 1 to speak of who Jesus is. Listen to John 1. In the beginning was the word, Logos, and the word, Logos, was with God, and the word, Logos, was God. He was with God in the beginning, through whom all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of, man, of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And so Jesus is the word. And so when Paul says here to Timothy, preach the word, sure, he probably has the counsel of scripture up to that point in mind, certainly, but I, I think he's getting something deeper here. Preach Jesus. 
Preach the gospel. This is what you are to proclaim. Don't just know it, but proclaim it. Apply it in life. Let's read verse 2 again. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. So Timothy is called to preach and proclaim Jesus when he's to be prepared in season and out of season. Think about the things that we prepare for. Expectant parents prepare for the arrival of, of a new baby and what that looks like in their life. We prepare for our work week. We prepare meals. We prepare for tests at school. We prepare for vacations and retirements. There's so many things that we prepare that we give attention and focus and, and, and intellect to in our life. Well, Timothy is charged to prepare to proclaim Jesus essentially all the time. The text says in season and out of season. One commentary that I read said that could probably best be translated whether convenient or not. Whether it's convenient or not, proclaim Jesus. How is he supposed to do it? He's told that he might have to correct. He might have to rebuke. He might have to encourage. And, and, and a lot of that fits into what Paul was telling him in other parts of the letter. When to do each of those will require wisdom from the Spirit. And he had to do this with great patience and careful instruction. And so, all right, Timothy, you're called to proclaim Jesus. You're called to do this all the time. Be prepared to do this. Why? Listen to verses 3 and 4. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. Timothy is called to proclaim Jesus because we know our tension. Our attention is for our flesh to take over, to get caught up in all other things and turn from the Lord. And so Paul is saying to Timothy, there is a need to proclaim Jesus so that we stay with Jesus. In verse 5, he closes this up by saying this, But you, referring to Timothy, keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. Timothy, people may turn each and every way, but you stay focused and centered on the gospel, centered on Jesus. Okay, let's recap. Paul says, Timothy, you need to be ready. Take note of this message. You need to preach. You need to proclaim Jesus. You need to be prepared to do it at all times. Why? To keep us from turning and uh, leaving the Lord. And so let's connect this to what we have been talking about as a church with the gospel. When we read a passage like this, it's probably for us to see how this fits to quote-unquote others. And uh, let me give you a few ways. We, We might say this. Quote, unquote, others are called to preach, not me. We already settled that one today and also last week. Or or we might say this, quote, unquote, others will go astray and go after false doctrine. We could read verses three to four. Oh, yeah, they're going to go after what they want to hear. And we can say, I see that playing out in our culture. And it is. But it's easy to quickly think that's somebody else. That's not me. But if we were to sit down and be honest, I think the reality is that we are often that person more than we want to admit. Our flesh rises up more than we want to admit which means that we need to hear Jesus preach to us continually more than we may want as well. We'll come back to that. Another aspect of others in this passage is the gospel is what I share with others. And this is true. That's probably the strongest application of this passage. We need to preach and proclaim Jesus to others in every context, whether it be our work, our family, our neighbors, school, home, whatever the case may be. But instead of trying to apply this all to how it affects others, can we ask today, how do I apply it to myself 
each and every day. So how does it apply to us on the day to day? Well, we need to preach Jesus to ourselves. We need to continually proclaim the gospel. So again, the gospel is not just for service. We, we, in fact, we can maybe say it like this. We are unbelievers. We have gaps in our belief. And, and when I say we're unbelievers, if, if you're watching with us today and you're saying, no, I'm a follower of Christ. I put my trust in this gospel and his death and resurrection. Yes, you're a believer in that sense of the word. If you have not done that, I would encourage you that it is absolutely the best decision that you can make and there'll be opportunity for you to do that today. But the reality is we're unbelievers in a different sense. We have these gaps. We have these areas where we have knowledge, but we do not carry it out. We know the info of how to make the raviolis, but we can't execute the raviolis. And we know that in a spiritual sense. Some of the language that we put around this is our confessional belief and our functional belief. We have the confessional, the intellectual belief of what the gospel is and what Jesus has done to us. But functionally, we don't always see that lived out. Let me explain. Confessionally, uh, we may know that we need to love our neighbor. Functionally, have you ever read social media, right? There's a ton of Christians there that are ripping their neighbors, slandering their neighbors, gossiping about their neighbors. Or, or what about that neighbor who parks in front of my house when they could park in front of their house and take up that parking spot instead of mine? Or, or what about my neighbor, the teacher who grades unfairly or, or my boss who's annoying or, or whatever the case may be? What about all those things? And so we have these gaps in our belief. We know what the truth is, but we don't execute. And the reality is this is a misunderstanding of the gospel. It's a misunderstanding of how Jesus speaks to even those moments. And we often try to solve these gaps by making the gospel something that it isn't. Let me give you three things that we potentially can make the gospel. We sometimes make the gospel about right thinking. I think all the right things, therefore I'm good. An example of this is Luke 10. Let's read together. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. Hey, he had the right answer. He got an A on Jesus' test. Good for you, man. Like, like he knew what it was supposed to be. But if you keep reading that, he wants to justify himself. He says, well, Jesus, who's my neighbor? And Jesus goes on to tell the parable of the Good Samaritan, which revealed Although he had the right thinking confessional, there was a big gap in functionally how he was living this out. And so we can see this in our lives as well. Many times we know the truth, but if we really examine, do I consistently apply that in my life? The answer probably is no. So we can make the gospel about right thinking, but sometimes we try to make the gospel something else. We make it about not the right thinking, but right actions. I do the right things, therefore I am good. This is moralism. This is where we get gospel fluent-ish. We have the language, we, we say the things, and we even do some of these things, but are they rooted really in a devotion and a heart for Christ? We carry out actions, but with what motive? Listen to Jesus' word to the religious leaders in Matthew 23. He says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you've neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. These religious leaders, man, they were tithing. Like, like they had a summer garden and they were tithing right down to the spices that came out in the garden. Like, okay, good, good for you. That's awesome. That wasn't, that wasn't wrong, but they were still neglecting other commands. They were neglecting justice and mercy and faithfulness. A gospel that we build on right actions will never save us and will never live up to it. Again, we see this, right? We can do the right thing, but the motive can be completely off. Oh, I, I could, I, you know, and, and we just, maybe we do it because I want to be noticed. And if I'm noticed, that's good. Well, we, we've got the right action, but, but the heart is not there. 
Or, or, or maybe we could even do the right thing in certain areas, but we don't have the right actions there. So I'll read my Bible, I'll tithe, I'll serve, uh, you know, but hey, gossip, hey, I'm not, you know, I do, but it's not a big deal, right? And, and we excuse certain ones. And, and, and so when we do this, we say, yeah, I have the right actions, but even my motive may not be right. Or I have the right actions, at least the ones that I deem are right, and the other ones I'm not worried about. And so we cannot make the gospel about right thinking or right actions. The last category maybe that we can make the gospel is about right experiences. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles. Then I'll tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. And certainly we see actions there. But, but think about the experience of that. Driving out demons, right? <laughs> Miracles. Like prophesying in the Lord's name, right? And Jesus says, no, that's not, I don't know you. And, and he says, only the one who does the will of my Father. It's interesting to note in John 6, they ask Jesus, what does God require of us? And says, to believe in the one he sent. In other words, pointing them back to the gospel and who Jesus is. And so we too can chase the right experiences. Maybe it's those, maybe it's others. Maybe, we're like, maybe we chase these, oh man, that, that prayer meeting was just awesome and the presence of God was great or all oh, that time of worship was just incredible. That, that's all good things. That's not bad. It's not like we shouldn't seek after that and enjoy those moments and be a part of those moments. We should. It's not that right thinking, right actions and right experiences are wrong. These should be normative in the life of disciples of Jesus. But it's a problem when we become making these things that close the gap. When we make these the things that save us, these the things that justify us, we should see these things produced by the Holy Spirit. But when we manufacture them, we're gospel fluent and excuse me, gospel fluent ish and not gospel fluent. The reality is that we need heart transformation, not brain behavior or experiential transformation. Right. And, and, and Paul says again to Timothy that he's supposed to preach this Jesus to other people, but we're applying it to ourselves. And so the gospel needs to speak to us in all of these moments. The gospel needs to speak to us when our behavior is not right or our thinking is not right or we're relying on experience and many other contexts. So how do we, as people living in our day today, become gospel fluent in the everyday moments of life? There's some formal language that I'm going to use in the next few moments that we use here at Connect Church to kind of help us frame and process this. Um, this is something that we've actually been building over these two years of us as, as a church plant. And so I'm going to give us a quick review because one, we all forget. And two, hopefully you're watching and maybe you weren't here at that time. And, and so I would encourage you, you could go back and check out some of these previous uh, ones, uh, the, the teachings that will kind of help you on it. But let me just give you an overview today. Let me introduce you to what we here at Connect Church call Kairos moments. Kairos is the Greek, one of the Greek words in the New Testament for time. Uh, it's not chronological time, that would be chronos, uh, but Kairos is kind of a special time. Think about how we look forward to special times. Uh, just yesterday I had a chance to catch up with somebody and, and, and hang out with them at Dunkin' Donuts. It was a special time. It was just Tuesday, but it was a special time, right? And, and so it's it kind of a Kairos moment. Or, or, or maybe you're looking forward to this weekend. You're like, oh, some time off to rest and relax, be with family, go hang out, go grab some food, you know, whatever. It, it, it's a special moment. It's just Saturday, but it's a special moment. That's a Kairos moment. Jesus used this language in Mark chapter one. He said this, the time, the Kairos, not chronological, the Kairos has come. He said, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the good news. And so Jesus at the start of his ministry is saying his ministry was a Kairos moment. It was a special moment. And so we as a church have been learning to process Cairo moments in what we would call three layers. Um, and there's an image that you're seeing now on the screen that will kind of help us with this. Two years ago, we started out with the surface layer. 
Think of this perhaps in agricultural terms. This is what's visible to us. It's the fruit that we see uh, on, on the surface above the ground. Here's some examples of what these types of Kairos moments can look like, the visible things. Maybe we're reading the scriptures, and as we're reading the scriptures, the Holy Spirit is speaking to us, whether correcting us or encouraging us. Uh, uh, maybe maybe we're, we're in a moment where we're in a church service, and man, it's like God is speaking directly to us, or in our small group, that's happening, and all those kinds of things, and God is encouraging us again, correcting us, helping us grow. Those are Kairos moments. They're visible we can see. The temptation for us is to limit it to overtly spiritual things or church activities. Certainly we want it to happen in those places, but it happens more than that. Maybe you are just grabbing a cup of coffee with a friend and God speaks to you. Man, that, that's a Kairos moment. Maybe you're out working out or taking a jog and God speaks to you through the beauty of nature. Maybe maybe you're at work and God shows you something and God speaks to you. Let, let me give you an example uh, from uh, my life. Uh, some of you may know, recently I was in a car accident uh, and I ended up having a, a mild concussion and so I needed to follow up with a neurologist. And uh, I was trying to find someone that could fit me in and every single neurologist I called was like, oh yeah, end of December, January, somewhere in February. I'm like, hey, this is September when this was happening. I'm like, I, I need something now. Uh, and I legitimately was going down the list. I mean, short, I probably made 30 to 35 phone calls. And so eventually I was like, well, one person said November, so, 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 so I'll, I'll go with them. Right. And, and as I was doing that, I, I called them back. I'm like, hey, yeah, I called, you know, I'll take that November appointment. And the lady says, hey, I don't believe this. Someone canceled for Tuesday morning, 830. George, if you want, I was like, put me in. I'm coming. I'm on my way now. You know, whatever the case may be. Right. I recognize as a Kairos moment. It was like, wow, God just did something in my life. Like, like I was stressed. I was frustrated. I was starting to get a little angry. And, and, and I, I would encourage you. When you begin to see out-of-control emotions in your life, that could be a sign of a Kairos moment. Moments where we're feeling tension or upset can be an idea that God is trying to get our attention. And so I'm like, wow, God just did something. This was a special moment. This was a Kairos moment. In our connect groups, we like to give opportunities to share these things because it's important that we verbalize them and it encourages one another. And, and so, so I want to encourage you to do that in our connect group environments. And so that's the surface layer. It's what we can see. Uh, that's where we started in year one of our church of processing those surface layer aspects of Kairos moments. Now, if you were to come over to my house and you were to look at my grass, uh, you would see some healthy grass, very minimal. Uh, and then you would see a bunch of weeds uh, that are growing everywhere. And that's the surface. But the reality is we know it's not just what I could see on the surface. There's something underneath that is producing uh, those, those things. Uh, there, there, there's roots that are producing each of those outcomes. And so last year, we looked at the second layer of Kairos, and you'll see it on, on the image here, is, is the idea of our roots. What's underneath these Kairos moments? Uh, what, what is the sign of it? And so some, some questions that we tend to ask here is what we were asking about before. Okay, what am I intellectually and confessionally believing, but what am I then functionally believing? What am I intellectually believing, and what actions are showing that I, I, what I actually believe? Are they in alignment? We're going to read Mark 1 again. We read before. Jesus said this, The time that Kairos has come, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Many times, Kairos moments are actually invitations for us to repent and believe. But we actually have to dig deep to kind of see where it is. Now, I want to say up front, not every Kairos moment is a moment to, to repent. You know, perhaps you're just, you're walking and you're seeing nature and God's encouraging you. You're reading the scriptures, you're being uplifted and comforted through a child. That's not necessarily a moment to repent. But I do think there are probably many moments where we can. Back to my example that I told you of, of when God had this Kairos moment for me of getting this doctor's appointment. As I sat and processed that moment later on, I was realizing, 
I was trying to keep all the control. Man, I wanted to, I, I was angry because I felt out of control because someone else hit me. It wasn't my fault. I didn't do anything wrong. Now I got this problem that I got to deal with. I, I, I had a concussion in the past, which was very severe. So I was worried I was going to go back into that way of life, which wasn't very great. And, and so now I'm aggravated. I'm trying to fix it. So I have to find the doctor. I have to get there. And I'm trying to live in this moment of control. The control was what was producing those emotions and those behaviors in my life. And so it actually was inviting me to an opportunity to repent and re realign myself to Jesus who has true control to speak the gospel in that moment. That's layer three. I'm getting ahead of myself. We'll get there, right? And so in layer two, we're looking at these roots. And a lot of times we find that, that, that our sin or even these moments find root in four areas. A lot of times we try to make sin a behavior issue. I just have to fix the behavior. That's like getting rid of the weed, like pulling the weed on the surface of the lawn, but there's still the, the root underneath there that's, that's producing that weed. It's just going to pop up somewhere else. Our sin is actually primarily a worship issue. What is my heart chasing? And then those things are just the fruit of that that's popping up. And so we have found that a majority of our sin tends to fall in four categories, and you're seeing them on the screen. Power, which we can define as a longing for influence or recognition. Control, a longing to have everything go according to my plan. Comfort a longing for pleasure or desire to avoid pain or approval, a longing to be accepted or desired. And so in my example, you saw control at play. Many other times in my life, I'll see approval at play. And these are not bad things in of themselves. <laughs> if we don't ever care what people think about us, it, there's a good chance we could be a serial killer, right? Like, so like we, we, we want to care about it. It's not bad to care about it. But again, when this becomes how I make decisions, when this produces behaviors in my life that are not honoring to God and when I'm worshiping, now I have an issue. I also want us to note that good and bad behaviors, quote unquote, good and good, bad behaviors can be motivated by these idols. It's probably easy to spot the quote unquote bad ones. So, so for example, if, if I put people down so I can look better or I stab everybody in the back at work uh, so that I could advance, all right, we probably could see that power idol coming out pretty quickly there, right? Like, okay, that's, that's probably an easy one. Um, but you know that good, quote unquote, good behaviors can be that as well. All right, all right. For example, um, someone could say, well, I, I gave an offering today. Great. Why? Did I give for power? <laughs> I, I, I'll be recognized. Did I give for control? Oh, now I got to do what I say. Did I give for comfort? I'll have nothing bad happen to me because I gave today. Or did I give for approval so I can get the pat on the back? You're a great disciple. You gave today, right? So, so, so it, it's, it's not necessarily just bad behavior. So we got to examine all these areas of our life. Dig down to the root. What's the heart motivation? Back to Mark 1, Jesus said, this is an opportunity to repent and believe. Oh, Lord, forgive me that I'm trying to live with all the control. Lord, forgive me that I'm living for this person's approval. Lord, that's not what you've called me to begin. Or, or Lord, even just this neutral behavior, I was doing something you called me to do, but I did it with a motivation that does not honor you. And so back to our picture, we got the surface level, what we could see, then we dig down to root what's producing it. And that's kind of where we are at a church for these first two years. Again, if you missed it, you can catch up on it. Uh, on that slide, I put a QR code. You can follow that and, and see some of the other messages where we talked about it if you want to learn more. And I'd love to talk personally if you'd love to do that as well. But let's get to that last layer because we can't just stop there. It's great to repent. It's great to know those things. But we actually have to get to the repent and believe aspect of this. And this is the foundation layer. Right, Because if we don't ever replace the power, the control, uh, the comfort, the approval, if we don't ever replace it with something or more notably someone else, no change will ever happen uh, within our lives. And so at this Kairos moment, at this foundation level, now we want to learn to do 2 Timothy 4, 1 to 5. We want to learn how do I preach Jesus at this very moment? How is Jesus better 
in this moment? How does Jesus save me from all these things? How does the gospel speak to me? And so for myself, I had to preach Jesus to myself. I wasn't able to do it in the moment. But when I sat back a little later on and I started thinking about what the Lord did uh, with, with the doctor for me, I said, okay, Jesus, you're the one who has all control. Jesus, you're the one to use what we've been talking about. This Lord, I'm trusting the story that you created me for good to be in relationship with me. You have not abandoned me in this moment. Jesus, you're the one who actually laid down control in order to give your life for me, but then you took it back up, demonstrating that you had it the whole time, right? And, and so I'm preaching the gospel to myself in those moments. Again, I'm not trying to say gospelish things um, that may or may not be helpful in the moment, but, but, but I'm trying to speak the gospel. And so this series, we've used some language. We've talked about being good, being damaged by evil, being restored, and together we heal. And sometimes that could be helpful to kind of point us to those things to speak the gospel to ourselves. At other times, in other contexts, we've used the following acronym. It, it, we've used God created us to be with Him. Our sin separates us from God. Sin cannot be removed by good deeds. Paying the price for sin, Jesus died and rose again. Everyone who trusts in Him alone has eternal life. And life with Jesus starts now and lasts forever. And so when we have these moments, it's good to look back to that and be like, okay, where do I find myself in the gospel here? And so next time we have an argument with somebody, next time we have tension at work, let's source out that idol. How does God speak to that? The next time that we're really stressed out about something going on in school or something, uh, next time we have to make a decision about something and, and, and whatever the case, how does the gospel speak? Find the idol. How does the gospel speak to it? Um, I want to show you a diagram that we've used in our discipleship pipeline. Uh, it, it, we call it root to fruit. Uh, this comes from a book called Gospel Fluency. It's a great read by Jeff Vanderstalt. I would encourage you to, to uh, pick it up and read it. But, but if you see the left tree there, uh, we see the fruit on the top. Desire for control, fear, anxiety, worry. Uh, we, we could put in there any list of behaviors uh, that we may want as well. As you walk down that tree, it asks some questions. Who am I? What has God done? Who is God? And, and, and as I think about that, again, using my example of the doctor, right? There was, there was this desire for control. There was anger, there was frustration uh, going on. And, and, and so I asked, who am I? I was like, I'm the guy that always gets hurt. I, I, I'm the guy that, that's always got a problem. Like I can never get ahead of things. And, and, and I asked, what has God done? And, and, and I probably wouldn't say this out loud, but if I was being honest, not about my confessional, but my functional belief at the moment, I'm like, I feel like God's not with me right now. Like, God, why are you making me go through this? When it happened, it was like a really stressful week. Like, God, there's so much going on right now. Like, like, like this is what I gotta go through. And, and, and so who is God? Again, I wouldn't have said this out loud, but like, man, God's not caring. And, 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 and so I have to be honest with myself in these Kairos moments. But then that gives me an opportunity for repentance because I know those things aren't true. And I see this gap here. And I could try to solve that gap with right thinking or right actions or right experiences, or I could bring the gospel to this gap. And when I bring the gospel, then I have a moment of repentance. Lord, I know this is not true. It's maybe what I'm feeling right now, but it's not true. And so, uh, uh, Lord, I repent. I turn my heart back to you that you are a good God. And I come up that right side of the tree. Now, on the right side of the tree, I'm saying, who is God? God is loving. He is caring. What has God done for me? How do I know that? I could probably give you a million examples in my life of how to know it, but primarily, how do I know that? God stepped into this world as Jesus to die for me and to be risen from the dead for my sin so that I can be restored to him. That's how I know it. And if he did that, he's not going to give up on me now. And so who am I? I'm God's child. I'm God's son. He hasn't abandoned me. And, and as I walk through that, even recounting it now, I, I can feel the fruit of peace. I, I can feel joy. I can feel love even in doing that. And so this is not easy. This takes work. We have to be honest with ourselves. We have to acknowledge some things. But this is discipleship. Our on the books definition for discipleship is this here at Connect Church. 
Discipleship is the lifelong journey of moving from unbelief to belief in the gospel in every area of your life, changing what you love and how you live. We already talked about these gaps. The way to solve them is not to change how we live. That comes, but first we have to change what we love. We need to preach the gospel to ourselves. We need to see Jesus as the better. And so as we close, I just want to thank you for your patience today uh, with, with a lengthy message. Um, but I'm just going to give you some tips of maybe how we can do this in our daily life. I would encourage you, uh, use the root to fruit diagram, uh, get the slide, whatever. We could get that to you. Just shoot us an email, whatever. Um, that's helpful, I think. Um, but just a couple tips. First, whether convenient or not. That's what Paul said to Timothy. It's going to really be inconvenient to do this. It takes time. It's annoying sometimes. Uh, you'd be like, I don't want to. I don't want to do this right now. You know what I mean? I don't, it's easier to wallow in pity. It's easier to wallow in wherever we are in, in, in those moments. But we need to preach Jesus to ourselves all the time. And so maybe a practice that we could adopt as a church. Maybe at the end of the day, uh, we need to just stop for five minutes and say, Lord, where do I need your gospel from what happened today? And just give the Holy Spirit a minute to speak to us. And if if you live with somebody else or you have a close relationship with somebody, maybe not even in your home. Maybe you want to do this together and just share that and encourage in that way. Jeff Vandersalt said this. He said, becoming fluent in the gospel happens the same way. After believing it, we have to intentionally rehearse it to ourselves and to others and immerse ourselves in the truth. We need to do this consistently. Second thought is we need to start looking and listening with gospel ears in every area of our life. So no matter what context, we need to start asking the question, how do I point to Jesus? How do I speak the gospel in this context? So let me give you just a few contexts that could happen. First is scripture. Jesus said something very interesting in John 5, 39. He said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me. And so Jesus said, the scriptures bear witness to him. How do the scriptures bear witness to Jesus? Jesus is not saying every single scripture makes a direct mention of him. But, but, but the scriptures makes mention, do, do this in Jesus, and that they point to him. They show how he fulfills them. Remember, the gospel starts in Genesis 1. It doesn't start in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so when we look at the big picture, if you think about this, if you went to see a play or you watch a show on TV or a movie, there is a main character. There's other characters, there's subplots, there's other things going on, but there's a main character where all this is happening. And so as we read the scripture, we have to read in a way, how does this tell me about Jesus? How does this point? That's how the scriptures bear testimony to Jesus. And so we're not trying to make Jesus magically appear in every text, but we are trying to see where does this text fit in the redemptive stage? And this also does not mean that we're not looking for other applications, right? And so just for example, as we read about the life and the account of King David, there's a lot that we could learn on a personal level and apply to our lives. That's true. We need to still do that. But we also need to say, how is Jesus the ultimate king? How does this point me to who Jesus is? How does this show me that Jesus is better? I also want to note here that we're not looking for allegorical or random interpretations. This is not like we're reading the account of Noah and we're like, well, there was wood on the ark and there was wood on the cross, so that must be Jesus. Like, that's probably not the interpretation that, that, that we're looking here. So here's four ways when you're reading the scripture that you can help look to Jesus as the better. Um, one is look for passages that predict. Some passages are very clearly predict uh, Jesus, uh, who he is, and what he would do. Think of the Messianic Psalms, think about prophecies, things of that nature, uh, and, and it's a clear prediction of Jesus. And so, and so when we do this, we're like, oh yes, the scripture is predicting who Jesus would be. Just reminds us of that. 
Another way we could look for is if a scripture is not predicting, it may be preparing us. Preparing us for what? Preparing us as God's people to understand the grace that God needs to provide in our lives. And so, for example, we mentioned King David before. There's an account where David shows unusual kindness to Mephibosheth, one of Saul's descendants. He should have killed him, but he shows him kindness. Um, and, and so as, as we read that, we could say, well, God, yeah, there's stuff we could learn there uh, in other areas, but this is preparing me for what God would do with Jesus. Pastor Frank shared on this a few weeks ago when we talked about Hosea and Gomer, right? It was actually preparing us for who Jesus is. There's stuff we could learn in that specific context, but preparing us for that. It's showing us the nature of God's grace, but it's also showing us our need for God's redemption. So a passage could predict who Jesus is. It could prepare us for what God would ultimately reveal in Jesus. Or if it does not predict or prepare, it can reflect who God is and who we are. Uh, again, to give an example of this, right, we'll, we'll just continue with, with King David. Um, we can read about King David and we can read different things. You know, he killed the giant. Yeah, there's applications there. Uh, you know, his downfall uh, with, with Bathsheba and we can learn from that and, and all these kinds of things. But when we read that, it could actually reflect who God is and who we are. We can see that David, yeah, he's awesome, but he's not the hero. There's a need for a greater king. There's a need for a better savior, and that's Jesus. And so this passage actually reflects that David is not the savior, that David is not the one who we're to be like, but it's really Jesus. It's someone better. Again, we can still learn things from his life, but that's how we could also interpret. And then lastly, if it does not predict, if it does not prepare, if it does not reflect, then it can show us the result of Christ's work on our behalf. This is where, how we could process a lot of the commands found in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. This is what will actually keep us from moralism. Right, Because the commands that God gives us actually flow out of the provision that God's already given us. And so we can read the Ten Commandments and be like, yes, I need to follow these things. Or we can read the Ten Commandments and be like, wait, let me set this in the narrative. Like God already saved these people and then he called them to live this way. It wasn't obey me and then I'll save you. It's I'll save you and then live this way. And so as we read that and we read other commandments throughout Scripture, specifically in the New Testament, as we read what's command, we read, wait, the gospel is power to live this way. God has already saved me. This is not my standing but it gives me the grace and the strength to do this. And so often when we read the Bible, we think about what should I do? Where should I do it? Maybe even how should I do it? And this answers the question of why should I do it? And so, so I want to encourage you to read scripture through that way. It's a challenge. It's a little different. Still read it the other ways, but, but grab that end. And to this end, our church is embarking on a reading plan. Um, that will help you uh, do that. We'll be kicking off soon. It kind of points us to reading in this way. Um, how else can we look for gospel eyes and ears? And then we'll close today. Uh, we can do it with others. Man, as we hear people in work and school and other places talking, look for the idols in their life. Look for who they're pointing to as the hero of the story. Now, I would suggest that you don't call it out. Don't be like, hey, you're clearly getting your identity from a power idol. That's not going to go very well, right? You don't need to, if they're a fellow disciple and you have a relationship, then maybe you could have a conversation. But just note it and then think, how would I speak Jesus to this? And who knows, maybe the Lord will open some conversation uh, in that way. Um, maybe do this with our media consumption. Whatever TV show that you're going to watch tonight on TV, the main character or other characters, they're putting their hope in something. How is Jesus the better? Just use it to practice to immerse us. And I want to encourage you, this is a growing process. Be gentle with ourselves and grow in it. And so this really matters. This matters because we want to have a true gospel, not a gospel of right thinking or right actions or right experiences. And it matters because if we're not gospel-centered people, then we're going to fall woefully short in evangelism. If there's no good news ongoing in the day-to-day -day aspect of our life, if we're not constantly seeing Jesus as better and that's not making a difference in our life, then how can we share that with someone else and they, it's them embrace a Savior who makes a real difference? 
Jeff Vanderstalk gives us this definition of gospel fluency. He says, gospel fluency is the ability to speak the gospel to the real brokenness and longing of people's souls in a way that they can hear, a way that sounds like the good news of Jesus for them and their present situations. And so we want to do that for others, but we also want to do that for ourselves. Jesus is better than everything. Maybe you're here and you realize that you've been looking for this good news in so many other places. Maybe you've been trying to provide it on your own. Can I encourage you today? It's only found in Jesus. God has created us to be with him. Sin and evil has damaged us and gotten away, but Jesus' death and resurrection fully restores us. It gives us the identity and purpose that we were called to live in. And together we heal now as God's kingdom comes to this earth, as we partner with God, but we also see him restoring every area of our lives. And if that's you, I want to encourage you. You can find your identity in Christ today. You can do that just saying, Jesus, I'm trusting in you. I'm putting my faith in you. And if you're making that decision, whatever platform you're watching on, there's a link there. We'd love to walk with you in this and, and help you grow in this and do this in community and celebrate with you. For others that you've already made that decision, we still need to know on a daily basis that Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Better than what any idol could promise. Whatever comfort I could dream up, whatever control I could dream up or approval or power, Jesus is better. And so I want to invite you today as we close this service Take a moment, just process. Lord, this week, where did I need your gospel? Lord, today, where did I need your gospel? And maybe walk through those layers. Here's what I'm seeing on the surface. Here's the root. Here's how the gospel speaks to us. And so may we be empowered by the Holy Spirit to be people who live in the gospel each and every day. Let's pray. Jesus, we need your help. Lord, we are often unaware of these things, but we know your gospel is a vital part of our everyday life. And so, Lord, I pray you help us to apply it each and every day. Show us the truth, Lord, that we may know you more. Lord, I pray your Holy Spirit will bring to memory, Lord, from this last week, this last day, areas where we've embraced a different gospel. Lord, we repent, we turn back to you, and Lord, we believe in you the better. Lord, help us, help us to grow. I thank you for each one watching. Lord, you know your need, their needs. Bless them and help them. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thanks for being with us today. Thank you for joining us today. We hope this encourages you to take your next steps in your faith journey with God. You can check us out more on connectchurchnj.com. Have a great day.